0: Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And it's me, Eamon,
1: known as Voidlight, on the server,
0: your other co-host.
1: Arthur, and I'm glad I found you.
0: Yeah, this place is wild. Very crowded. Lots and lots of people to bump into, work our way through, loud music. It's it's honestly a kind of an uncomfortable situation for me. I really don't like this kind of tavern. Oh, no, the party's great in here right now. Guess who I found? Wait, you found somebody? You've got yeah. somebody besides me? Who else are yeah. you looking for, Eamon? Daniel Cell. Daniel Cell is here? Yeah, he's here. At a party with us?
1: Well, I don't know if he came for us, but he's here. I invited him wow. to our table. Cool. Hey, Daniel. How's it going?
0: It's, it's, it's going okay. It's not bad. Oh. What's what's wrong, Daniel? It sounds like something's kind of getting to you. It's probably I'm been not... partying all day. <laughs> I'm,
2: not, I'm not really an outside kind of person.
0: It's, That's fair uh... enough. Well, why don't we find a nice back room? We'll grab a table, we'll grab a couple of nice ales, and we'll just sit down and, and talk shop, maybe about some tabletop role-playing games. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's still outside, but I guess that it will soften. All the right. Impact a bit. Uh, is there it, perhaps we could find a cellar somewhere, or maybe someplace moist? Maybe some kind of like maybe adjacent cupboards or something. Ooh, adjacent oh, cupboards yes. we could do. Wonderful. We just yeah.
1: go into the restroom and just talk from a row of three stalls. Now that we're talking. That would be quite
0: comfortable. Yeah. All right, well, clang, <laughs> clack, latch shut. Let's get into it, folks. We so Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you uh, what you are kind of known for and what you do out in the world of tabletop roleplay?
2: Um, well, hmm, I am a publisher. I publish under the name of the Masonian Arts Council and. I also write books published by that. It's uh, it's my it's my uh, elaborate vanity press that just happens to publish other people. Um, uh, the most recent thing we've done is my book Troika, which is a roleplay game based loosely on my early experiences of playing fighting fantasy, choose your own adventure style books. Um, they also publish various other things um rpg related and adjacent
0: very cool so i actually am on your website melsonia.com right now and i'm looking at some of the things that you have featured here including Mm -hmm. the troika initiative deck fever swamp and of course troika itself so Mm we talked about troika before would you mind just giving the bottom line pitch just so that everyone who's listening, especially new listeners are all on the same page about what it is that you uh, what what it is that you've created?
2: Um yeah, the bottom line pitch has always been an issue with uh, with Troika. It's uh because there's very little common ground with the majority of people who play role games. Uh because the, the the origin of it is is a relatively obscure British tradition i suppose um but it is uh, i think my favorite one was uh hipster planescape
1: that's, that's what i tell people I too yeah, yeah.
2: Hip, hipster planescape that's fine that works yeah i'll take it
1: say so it's it's odd people bumping into each other on the road yeah it is
2: it is um the 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 uh the general tone is it's a it's a confusion of manners it's the uh it's the idea of being at a party where you don't know anyone and you're
0: not sure what the rules are Ah, something that I can very strongly relate to. Yeah, I mean, that, that is that is generally the game. Wonderful. Space. Well, this may be a Dungeon World podcast, but we've never shied away from exploring other tabletop games as well. No, and, I have not. <laughs> and I definitely think that tonight we're going to learn a lot, both from uh, Troika and also from the ways in which that impacts how we think about Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse games in general. But before we get into all that, Eamon... I understand that you have a highlight from a recent game oh
1: i absolutely do so i was uh in st louis for a um like a a various family events um last weekend and i was with a group of people that i wouldn't have been with otherwise mainly my uh, my wife's family so the in-laws and all of the women were at a you know, bridal shower. So I was like, of course, while they're gone, let's, uh, let's, let's play a one shot. Um, and so the age range went from my father-in-law all the way down to my wife's youngest brother who was 11, 10, 10. And, um, and then in between was, uh, someone about my age and someone a little, just a little younger than my age. So I had a four-person party and I pitched to them. I, they had either never played role-playing games before, played a bit of fifth edition in the case of one guy, or not played in 20 to 30 years in the case of my father-in-law. So I was really excited to just see the dynamic at the table. And I said, guys, I'm prepared to do one shot either in Into the Odd or in Troika. And I kind of gave them the pitch for both and they were like, let's, let's do Troika. And I had these excellent, excellent character sheets, um, that I'll, I'll link, um, I'll, I'll link in the show notes uh, and credit the artist because I don't remember it offhand, but they were really gorgeous. And I had a uh, a little one-page dungeon by uh, by Philadelphia, Hanson, Viney, and Hamish McIntyre called Mavir the Magnificent's Megamart, which is basically this setup where it's this pocket dimension that this wizard has set up so that she doesn't have to basically buy food ever again, that like just in this pocket dimension is all the groceries she'd ever need. But they've all sort of like mutated and whatnot so it's sort of like jurassic park but with food um like where there's things like the storage labyrinth which is this massive maze of giant cardboard boxes or there will be like the frozen tundra of uh you know refrigerated goods and there's the plains of flesh which is like a graveyard of various like meats and necromancers and things like that um and definitely a great time um some highlights from that game included uh, a tavern called the tall glass of water that i had in on an island in the middle of a river of soft drinks the only thing that the tavern served was actual water but the residents treated it like it was a delicacy because they couldn't get just pure water anywhere else because everything was just a mishmash of different drinks and so like people would do things like pour themselves some water take a sip frown pour it out pull out a corked bottle open it pour it into a glass, it's just another glass of water, and then like seem very satisfied. And so the adventurers are just sort of looking at this. But um, I think most of my favorite parts of Troika were able to come to the forefront in that in that session. The, the, the character generation we did all randomly with Troika's backgrounds, and we ended up having um, an ardent giant of Korda. So this character started out with no weapons, but they're extremely tall and strong, and they're nostalgic of some lost home that they have. Uh, we had a Thaumaturge, so they were using a lot of weird spells and whatnot. We had a Burglar, uh which came in very nicely, fulfilling the party's sort of thieving needs. And I'm trying to recall what the last one was. I quite forget, but in any case... Oh, the last one was one of my favorite backgrounds. A uh, a Temple Knight of Telak, the Swordbringer. Which is basically this character that the more swords they're carrying on their person the more armor they're considered to have because of this blessing that they have. Um, so, And that was played by the youngest member of the group. And so he he's sitting there scribbling on his character sheet the names of all six of his swords. And so he would call them by name when he drew them in. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's me.
0: tremendous. Very cool. So you had... This Jurassic Park, but with food instead of dinosaurs kind of situation. Did you have any food-inspired monsters in the mix? And if so, I'd love to hear about them. Oh, yeah. So um, there's the the wizard herself.
1: Um, The reason that they were trying to retrieve her was because she wasn't made of food. But the reason they were trying to retrieve her was because she was scheduled to be in an arranged marriage with some sort of like interdimensional prince. And she was sort of delinquent on that. And so they had to just they were basically like an ex prisoner group that was conscripted to take on these missions and go and deliver bad news to upset wizards and dangerous folk like that. So they were sort of airdropped into this little sphere and just said, like, come back with the wizard or don't come back. And so they go out there um, and they did encounter several people made of food. So they, they encounter this candy kingdom, which the, the, the wizard's petulant child was sort of the default ruler of that. She just kind of give him free reign over her like constructed subjects and, uh, was very spoiled. And so he's ruling over, like, um uh, candy corn folk and gumdrop people and things like that. Um, but his guards were all Oreos, which I took from, I think, the Muppets version of, um, of the Wizard of Oz, where the, like, evil witch's castle, um, they have, like, Oreo guards and they go, Oreo, Oreo, like, you know, in a parody of the of the sort of tune that they sing in the actual Wizard of Oz. But these Oreo guards, like, they got into a fight with, and, um, Janice, which was the name of the, um, Temple Knight, uh, character that, um, my young brother-in-law was playing, um, he, he had a finishing move where he dispatched one of these spear-wielding Oreo guards, and they were wielding, like, sharpened candy canes. And he said that he was spreading the cream filling from the inside of this Oreo on its own, like, face. And I That's... was just like, <laughs> oh wow that's tremendous <laughs> oh. and then he he picked up on the nuances of role playing games quick and this is something you might find if you play with young kids that uh, after the battle he said I start digging to see if I find a chest and oh. I was like oh okay and I said well roll a d20 and if it's a 20 you find a chest and it wasn't but then mm-hmm. later on when he, they were they, they snuck into the witch's room and basically like, confronted her and the other two characters were in the open speaking with her and he was hiding. And he said, I reach under her bed to see if I find a lever. And I said, okay, <laughs> well, roll a d20. And it was a 20. And so I said, okay, what does the lever do? Tell me, you found a lever. And he said, it summons a genie. And so I said, okay, yes! sure, you get a wish. That's and he about. wished that the wish, he wished, he wished that the witch was delivered home. And so she disappeared, but they're still there, <laughs> stuck in that's the Candy Kingdom. amazing.
0: <laughs> and that's how we ended the session. It was, it was pretty great. I love that. I, uh, th- and that's so much up my alley right now, because as we talked last time on Picture This, I'm, I've been contemplating what a, what a G or PG rated version of Dungeon World might feel like. The idea of fighting your way through a Candy Kingdom and smiting oreos lets you do so many of the same gory nasty moves of a dungeon world combat scene but with the stakes of of spun sugar and and great rivers of of red icing i guess
1: yeah the the rivers were of just like soft drinks like all together you could go with yeah. an entire candy theme but this was like all different foods over the course of it uh yeah like i said i link the one page adventure um, it's it's pretty great. Uh, some of the stuff was stuff that I added on on my own, um, but yeah. The, by default, there there are things. There's a lot of stuff we weren't able to touch on because there's so much. Even in just in one page, there's more material than you can see just in a single session of play. Like there's this canyon called the Dry Canyon that's full of just dry goods, like canned foods, and there it says in the module that it's a rumor that there's a chili dragon, uh in there.
0: Fantastic. Oh. Uh... Cool. So, Daniel, as the creator of the game in which this uh, in which the session was run, what are your thoughts?
2: I think it's entirely appropriate. I mean, uh, um, I think soon after having written it, I, uh, I I had to come to terms with Adventure Time having a, a certain influence over the, the tone of it. So, I think it's utterly appropriate to have that kind of thing. And um it also seems to be really common that people play Troika with children. It seems that a lot of people come to me saying that. They 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 played it with their like school class or they played it with their young children for whatever reason. I mean it was never intended, it was not uh, it was not designed for that bit you mean in mind, but Cool.
0: Yeah, well, so I me... think that
2: is that is uh, working as it is intended i suppose wonderful
0: to me that puts you in the same pedigree as something like maybe mouse guard even if it wasn't intentional landing in that realm where you can create something really compelling for all ages is a real achievement uh so that that's fantastic so one thing um uh, mechanically i
1: guess jumping a little bit ahead that i'd be interested to 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 get an insight into is um this was the first session i played trick there was an extended combat because normally when i when I play it's uh especially when I play Troika there's so many role-playing possibilities the characters very seldom get into combat and I'm not running it that heavy but Uh these characters were wildly antagonistic especially when they were (laughs) in the town and so they had a scuffle at one point with um several Oreo guards all at once as they were like as they like blew up this chocolate wall and were sort of storming outside Uh um and so it, I was running like four players against three NPCs and I was doing the rules as written Troika initiative system uh, with a deck of cards uh-huh. where um, you have two cards for every PC, an end of round card, which I was using as the Joker, and then several other cards for the um, NPCs. And I was doing two per. So there was two cards for each of the different Oreo Knights. And when any of those came up, any one of the Oreo Knights could take their turn. Mm-hmm. And on the way that Troika's rules is written is if you're attacking someone, you stand a chance of getting damage too, similar to dungeon worlds. But um, based on the sort of RNG of that, uh, we had several, we had three full rounds pass and everyone, all of the guards were dead except for one before one of the pcs got a single turn so one of the one of the pcs like the burglar was actually just sitting there for most of the fight not acting because he never got a turn and he never got attacked yeah and so it can just turn out that way sometimes yeah it's, it's hilarious
2: i mean or all, all, all the entire party dies which is fun you yeah. can get like situations um i think um the fun thing that was my my group learned after a while was that uh you can get in situations where you have like you know like one like, ancient swordsman guy, and just like, we're, we're not fighting him. It's like, cause every time one of them will go to fight him, he'll just, he'll just murder them. They'll just get murdered over and over again. There's no limit to how much one person can kill you. Like, the more people there are, the more chances they have to right, kill you. Right. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it is, it is very, um, fighting is very dangerous in
1: Troy. It, um, it feels a lot different in play too. And you have to sort of fictionally justify things in different ways than you used to other systems. Like we were saying, like, in the course of this battle, why wasn't the burglar doing anything? So I'm asking his player, like, it seems like turns aren't coming up for you. Like, what are you doing? And he was saying that he was just shouting orders to everyone else, or he was just sort of sm- big grin on his face while this is raging around him, that sort of thing, so... Yeah,
2: yeah, uh yeah. so it's like the, the, the randomness of it is just to, like, you know, sometimes people just stand around while everything, someone is getting their head kicked in, you know, so... Uh... <laughs> like you'd never say that while well, I'm just watching my friend get beaten up but in real life you might you might just like not know what to do in the moment plus yeah. it's fun to, to have absolutely no control over when you get to you know uh, impose your will on something
0: well speaking of imposing our will i'm getting the feeling that the folks waiting to get into this uh, this private area of the club are getting a little annoyed with us Maybe if we change topics, they'll uh, they'll move on and not worry about it. So why don't we jump into adventure workshop? Let's.
1: It's a. I don't know if it's a little known fact because I don't have the the uh, server side metrics that you might be able to see, Daniel. But you have a blog, which I didn't know at least for the first while of. Knowing about Troika and playing Troika. Mm-hmm. It's called, uh, what would Conan do at blogspot.com? And, um, we've actually featured, uh, something that was on that blog before on this show, cause that's where I learned about the six dimensional weather, um, that I've been having great fun with.
2: Oh yeah, that thing. Uh,
1: um, but there is a post that I, I was going back through the backlog and reading a bit and you had written about something, uh, that you termed Troikan bumble logic. Um, which was some, uh, basically summarized by the first sentence of that article, which is, when running interplanar games, you can reduce time and space to an abstract narrative tool. And there's a lot of ideas in that post, but the one that stuck out to me most was just creating basically like creating your own custom like motifs like at the table that Mm -hmm. you introduce something and you just keep cycling it around and introducing it even between campaigns and i've had great use out of that that it's basically like an inside joke factory or an inside not even if it's funny but just an inside element factory where you can just change the color of something and like one player will instantly know like oh like if they've played in games with you before they'll see what you're doing there um and this can be with npcs or a lot of other things like i think i've mentioned before on the show that i have these two characters talker and crowl Mm -hmm. One is a, and I, sometimes I just use the names and just change who they are, but, um, other times I keep other elements of them, which is that Talker is a, a white, um, a white skinned, or I guess white-furred chimpanzee, uh, who is a salesman who is always selling like strange curios, and he rides around on this massive, uh, ochre-colored crab, uh, named Crowl, and the crowd, crab has sort of like a howdah and like a pop-up stall on its back, and he'll just sort of pop up anywhere, um like even the most unlikely places on this massive crab and just start trying to hawk strange goods to the players. And I've been using that in Invisible Sun a lot, which is great for the surreal nature of that setting that even when they're in some kind of godforsaken jungle, this this random crab pops up with this monkey mm-hmm. on it trying to sell them bizarre seeds and things. But I, I can just bring that into other games too. And if the same players are there, they'll they that character will already have you know it's it, I don't have to reintroduce him and and put in some of that role playing effort to flesh out the nuances of his character because I'm calling on all of those past experiences they have, and it's creating that sort of depth
2: yeah so the um yeah the resorting thing. like the uh I suppose like the other th- the 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 main kind of thing I was getting out of the bumble logic was the um like with your like having your guys come back and so on um like the other thing you can do with that is to deconstruct them. Which is fun. Just so you can just like you can just keep the names and apply them to to different things. Like have two people turn up with that that same name. Have a have have that have a a gorilla appear, a white gorilla somewhere in a game, and it'll just um it'll carry some of the weight of of what the players know. Um. It was also um. I don't know if I don't, I can't remember if it was made clear in the in the Bumble logic thing. But it was also an idea I had about mitigating the, the issue some people had with the sometimes ridiculous fatality of, of Troika, if used in a certain way. Um, in that, just because your character dies, like you still have the knowledge. You still know who that, the monkey and the crab are like as a human being playing this game. So you will have all these, these things, these motifs and images and knowledge that you can carry with you and is and is fine, because no no matter how uh, how many characters you have and how much effort you put into differentiating them, they are they do all still have the the thing in common that is you, uh, you're you're behind it driving it around.
1: Yeah, I think, and I've experienced with this um, in some open table games that I've played often in fifth edition, but sometimes players feel limited by their character. Like they feel like if they have a low int score or something, they're not allowed to like contribute smart plans to the group. You know, I'm like, you can still say that cool thing you're thinking of, and we'll just make it come through the mouth of a different character. You know, or just, you know, f- find a different way to roleplay that. That you, I, I, your character isn't like the end all be all or the, the box that your ability to explore certain elements and stories is limited by. It should be like a jumping off point, if if anything. And, yeah, the. In other senses of kind of what this post is getting at, and listeners, you'll understand more if you read it, but um, there's a part where you say that we we don't need a plan in mind when placing these narrative devices. We just use them. They'll either snowball and gather up meaning and weight, or they'll wither naturally. And I've tried to explore that specifically, like, very deliberately as one of my personal GM goals uh, when playing Invisible Sun. And to a lesser extent, Troika, just because they are games where the sort of, for lack of a better term, weird elements, or or in the case of Invisible Sun, like more codified as surreal, mm-hmm. um, are played up a bit more where I won't, as a GM, even take strict notes. Like I won't write down the names of characters and things like that. And then later on, if I remember them, I remember them. And if I don't, I'll just give an approximation. So NPCs' names might morph over time and the players might notice or they might not. And so the world is sort of like changing in the background and shifting as things that stick out to us survive and things that don't get naturally forgotten. And that's a sort of like meta way for me to inject that sort of surreal element where the past is just sort of rewriting itself as it's going on. And sometimes things in the game, like only the broad strokes remain. Like there is a, um, there'll be two characters and and I might've said specifically in a like Moment where I was put on the spot doing improv dialogue that one character was the other's son, but then I might make them the son of someone else, like later on, because I just kind of forgot about that. And if a uh, if a player or or a character like corrects that and said, "Wait, isn't this other thing true?", then it can go either way. I might say yes, and they're lying now, or I might say like, "No, not anymore." And I don't know. It's it's. I don't know if that would work for all tables, and certainly a lot of people would be stressed out, like if they just don't have. You know a big world anvil page and they're not tracking everything there's actually proprietary and expensive tools out there you can buy to track all the all the fiddly yeah. bits in your game but in the, I, I was specifically going into this like you know whatever themes stick out to me in a moment those will survive and the rest will sort of like you say wither naturally hmm. i think i think the the only important thing to, with that is to just do it with
2: um just do it deliberately uh, rather than I sort like, like, to, to know you're going in with that, to, um, to do it with purpose, I suppose. Rather like, it's like, you, you're not doing it as a, as a kind of a, just pure laziness, although it can be right. part of it. It's like, it's not just like, well, it's just, you know, like, you don't present it to the players, like, you know, that guy, the one, you know, Bob, whatever, screw it. Like, it's not presented like that. I think that the, the trick is, it's kind of, uh, I suppose it's also kind of different, I guess, in, in comparison to Dungeon World in that, like to, to do it this way, you need to have the illusion of being authoritative because it's not because when you say like, oh, yes, this is this is Jeremy, the white gorilla. And it's like, wasn't he something else before? It's like, no, he's not. it's Jeremy. And then it just it creates a nice confusion. Whereas if it was if it was more uh, um, collaborative and the gym was less authoritative, then it would be like it'd be more it'd be more open, less weird.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's a sort of like if you're watching avant-garde like theater or something, there needs to be some construct in place and some ability on the performer in the audience to distinguish between a deliberate choice and a mistake, right? That if they mm-hmm. think you're just sort of floundering as a GM, then their immersion is broken versus if you're doing some kind you know, some conscious narrative choice. And like, I've communicated such to my players, like they know kind of what's going on there. Um And additionally, like, this whole construct doesn't supplant the need for prep for a session. It's just that prep looks different. And similarly to Dungeon World, the, I mean, the whole philosophy of our show of playing to find out, that doesn't mean to show up to the session and, like, you've literally just done absolutely nothing mentally mm-hmm. to get yourself ready for that space. You actually, you know, the sky's the limit with how much you can prepare, but it, you're not um, limiting yourself in that prep. Like, you're not deciding events ahead of time. Like, the way that I would prepare for an Invisible Sun game would be about thinking about the characters, arcs that they have in place and like how I can draw in their personal themes, how I can touch on, you know this character is interested in the ideas of family and he's trying to discover his lineage and like how can, you know, different things I'm interested in exploring as a GM play into that and instead of me saying like, okay, there's going to be four goblins in
0: room six and they're all going to have, you know, short swords and stuff like Mm. that, so. Or maybe more importantly, there are going to be four goblins in room six, they all have short swords and there's no way you can avoid fighting them.
1: Yeah. 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 Or sometimes even like they will win. Like, you know, no matter how this fight is going, sometimes even adventure modules say, like, if the fight's going badly, introduce XYZ to like come and save the day. It's like, why? <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, just kill them. Just, yeah. You know, yeah. Just kill them all. <laughs> Let them die. Or make softer hard moves. Or make harder soft moves. Lots of options. But there's no need to have something preloaded for it, certainly. So. We've we've kind of naturally transitioned into more of a, a conversation about the ways in which we play games and the ways in which we like those games to be played, which I think is a very natural transition point into our meta talk discussion today where we're talking about independent game design. So, Daniel, since you have a background in and and even uh, an outright what I would call expertise in independent game design, I'd love for us to start this conversation just by asking, what is the core of your design philosophy? What do you think is the most important choice to make when coming up with an independent game? Or really any game. It doesn't have to be independent. Cutting right right to the quick. (laughs) Um, So as, as a writer rather than a publisher, yeah? Oh, for sure. As a designer and writer. Yeah, so, um,
2: I, um, okay, so I th- prefer to work from something that exists already. And, cause I, I like, um, I mean, this is like, cause I mean, I, my, my background is, is in more traditional, um, like writing rather than this. I just, um, and it was the same there that it's, that it was, it's more enjoyable to take a thing and then dismantle it pull it to pieces cuz it's not i like i like being able to react to something and and say that this annoys me why does this annoy me and then and then just 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 break it and then just throw things in randomly and just just make a mess make a mess and just bury the original thing underneath just a complete uh travesty and then just cut it away build it up cut it away um Um, I mean, that, that's the, the, the mechanical side of things, mainly. Um, otherwise, uh, I design, uh, like Troika specifically, for instance, and there are other, there are other, like, there are other projects that have been before and since Troika, like, none of which have been to a point where I'm happy with them to be considered finished, I guess, is, um, like Troika's idea, I mean, it was started with the idea of it having, a subtext, I suppose, uh, in that it was it was um, intended to attack the problem of nostalgia, because I think nostalgia in in everything pretty much is um, limp. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly useful or enjoyable thing. I don't think anyone. Uh, I don't think you get very much out of it, and I don't think that very that the that people making these nostalgic callback games are are doing it right, because you can't, um, because you th- th- you this this the feeling of playing, for instance, Dungeons Dragons for the first time, you can't create that again, because that was a time and a place as well as a as a book. Just giving you the book from that time does not. Doesn't do anything. It's just like, it's one of the many uh, artifacts.
1: Yeah, it's like, where can I get a box set that has the book, My Five Friends, you know, A Week of Free Time, and My Childhood Innocence? I'd love to buy that somewhere.
2: Exactly. You can't, you can't do it. So, the, uh, I came at Troika with the idea that you, you need, you, I'm not trying to recreate the, the artifact of that nostalgic moment. I'm trying to create the, um, that feeling, so you know, it was the, the the wonder and the confusion. You, need, you needed, so I, like, my main memory of, for instance, uh, I think like Planescape is something I had a lot of nostalgia for originally. I think I spoke about it somewhere on the blog at some point, but like I really, really loved, um, I had, well, Planescape, at least I thought I did, but I only had like two of the box sets, and then as an adult, I got the rest of them and I found out they're terrible. Oh, no. they're really terrible. Um, uh, the original ones I had were good, but like the first ones that like, when they came out the gate and they're really like creative and excited about what they're doing, and then they just you know they're getting that pay per word money. Um, but yeah, the, those books when they when the first books are all the books you have, the the universe is wide and open and confusing. It's like I don't know what's here. Like there's this paragraph about an entire infinite realm. How exciting is that? That could be anything, and your mind just goes mad. And then when they describe it in excruciating detail, they completely squash it and kill it. Yeah. So I was trying to create something that would uh, basically be that planescape box set for me. It's like yeah. it is a it is a game that will, in this case, deliberately um, just tease you. Just it, it will never uh, it'll never explain itself. But I can also sincerely tell you that. I do know the answers to the things. Like, they exist, but you can't have them, and you'll never have them, and that's fun, and that's nice. Tremendous. Um, To kind
1: of give listeners an idea of this, maybe if you've never read Troika, there's no setting material necessarily provided. Just in the backgrounds of the, like, starter packages your characters can have, and in the descriptions of monsters, and in various other little places in the book, like the descriptions of spells, you get hints that these certain things exist. Like, there is a background that's... uh, you know sorcerer from the college of college of friends or something like that and that's not mentioned anywhere else but just you know that it must be a thing because it exists in this one character background or for example the golden barges they're mentioned in like one or two places in the book as these ships that can fly between the the spheres or the the, the dimensions the realms but they're not explained they're not talked about like who makes them where are they like how do they work it's up to you to kind of color in those blanks to like play to find out and to make troika your own which is why differently than fifth edition if you talk to another table that played troika they have very different takes on the book and the setting and the characters and all of that which creates this really interesting you know just space. and it i think i think a lot of the design goals that i see in the book were are kind of achieved in that that it, there is like a wonder to it and like the first time reading troika i can remember like i can remember the first time like looking through that list of character backgrounds and just being like, okay, I got to read all of these. Like...
2: Yeah, Which, yeah. yeah. That's, that's one yeah. of the things I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased with, uh, with, with like, I mean the things, the, the things I wanted to do with Troika, I think I, I achieved. I mean, for, for whether it's good or bad, I think is, is a, isn't a, is, is separate issue, but the, I mean, so I did like, like you're saying, everyone's games are very, very different like uh like I did the Kickstarter recently to print a nice version of it, and there's a bunch of chat books that have been funded just like I'm getting people i'm i i i like working with to write me some stuff, and a few of them are in i've got the i've got the uh the drafts of uh three of them uh two two of them are using some setting stuff from from the main book, both of them are using them completely differently to how i use them like they've interpreted because i refuse they uh, i refuse to tell them anything about my games um, that's awesome and so you're going to
1: basically th- publish what what would be considered official or canon troika mm-hmm. material that is self-contradictory yeah yeah the, that's the, the, awesome. the,
2: the point of the, i i always intended to make to, to be to contradict myself constantly with 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 stuff i would bring out afterwards i mean I, the release schedule has been pretty bad but you know yeah. working on that. But they're like yeah, two of them are that and one of them has used skills in a completely um weird way. Like because um Ezra Clavery is uh is is one of the people who's writing one and he wrote Chris Dormancy*, which was the first like proper book I published. And he's a fantastic writer. But he's never played Troika and he's never read it. And I was just like, Do you want to write a book for Troika? And he's like, Oh I mean I suppose I can And then I like, this is it. I just is the PDF uh, do the thing, and um, and he's got a very interesting take on on how the game works. But it's like it's completely logical. I look at it, it's like oh yeah, I guess I guess that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense until it's it's seen. But it's like it is just more examples that these just people can go off in odd directions. Cool. While while feeling that they're playing the same thing, and it's really fun as well, like with your the like we we're talking about the signifiers earlier as well, like when you talk to someone who's also playing the game, they will be saying the same words that you're familiar with, but using them completely differently to you, which is which is hilarious
1: well um, i'd like I'd like to imagine for our listeners out there like imagine trying to play fifth edition, but like with just the player's handbook, you know, like all these different monsters you've heard of and are referenced. You don't get the monster's guide to spell it out for you. You know, there's mentions of the planes, but you don't get the DMG to spell it out for you. And in a lot of cases, like, that's almost, that can be almost better or like just more interesting or cooler, especially once everything, you know, is old hat if you're a player who's played it for a while. Because sometimes I remember like thinking a place would be so interesting, you know, like when they, when they would talk about the Shadowfell. Like I thought that was so interesting and then I would go and read in the DMG. i like, oh, you know. The, the the questions and images I had in my head were almost better, you know. And you can always return to that, but, like, yeah. I, the, it, the wonder is hard to recreate, I suppose. What were you going to say, Arthur?
0: Yeah, so there was one specific thing that Dan brought up that I really strongly identified with. Um, and that's around fleshing out something that can be left to the imagination and finding it disappointing when you do or when someone else does for you. I remember when I was a kid reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. I had these my dad gave me these beautiful older versions of the first two books, which had, you know, sort of what I would imagine to be 70s or 80s era cover art. And then the copy of Return of the King that we read was released in concert with the film. And so it had Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn on the cover, (laughs) which meant I went from my own internal vision of what Aragorn looked like to being told, oh, this is Aragorn. This is Aragorn. And it's totally different from what you imagined. And I remember feeling like that's not what Aragorn looks like. Aragorn doesn't have long hair. Why would he have long hair? He's in the forest all the time. It would be he would he would cut it short and messy and, and having like an opinion about that. <laughs> so I definitely identify with that feeling that you describe of being disappointed when something is is elucidated. But at the same time, I when I design encounters or or come up with settings or really do any kind of work in the space, I always worry that if I don't. That, that if I don't have everything ready for people, that they'll be dissatisfied in kind of the same way that people might have been with, say, I want to say lost, having not seen lost. I understand that they left a lot of things unresolved. Um, and it, I'm curious, how do you manage that balance of things being left unresolved in an unsatisfying way, uh, but also mitigating the risk of resolving them in an unsatisfying way? I guess, how do you avoid that dissatisfaction on either side of the spectrum? Is that an uh, open question? Yeah, if, uh, Eamon, if you have opinions on it too, I'd love to hear them. Uh, just
1: my quick two cents would be just you have to know what the players want to be resolved. Because like your idea of like, well, I'm satisfied, and they're like, wait, but what about X, Y, Z? If you don't know that ahead of time, if you're not both in character and out of character, sort of interrogating them, eliciting the their desires and their interests out of them, then you won't know, and then you're, you'll sort of stumble into leaving people dissatisfied.
2: Um, so do you, do you mean more as uh running for like running a game or do you mean well the, uh, actually like making
0: it it's a good question from my perspective i'm asking it because i've typically run games and don't design them but you as a designer i think have maybe even a deeper connection with that question than i would as someone who who plays so what whichever perspective is more interesting from for you i would love to hear
2: okay um I think um, from a design point, it's easy because realistically you're designing for game masters the like players they're 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 a level um separated from you I think everything's gonna get filtered through the people running the game, so I think handing them just a bunch of prompts is is acceptable as long as they're they're juicy enough um I think running a game I think it's always polite. To at least have a solid idea of what the truth is, because um, I mean, I, like I, I personally, um, I the games I've enjoyed the most have been uh, like uh, I think one of my favourite campaigns I've ever played in was a very hardcore campaign in, of uh, Tecumel, Tecumel, Tecumel um yeah was that game master yeah i mean the game master is i mean he's one of the guys who's doing all the the remake and whatnot were you
1: playing ruins of that pedal throne or whatever it's called
2: yeah yeah and it's just like it's it's incredibly in-depth and playing of a game master where you can be like oh so what's the significance of that hat and then well let me tell you and then go off on a 20 minute talk about the significance of different heights of hat That's, that's fantastic that's incredibly exciting um yeah, it's nice to it's nice to at least have the illusion that the game master can can tell you anything, um, and it is polite to maintain that as best as possible. I think,
1: so because it, yeah. it it keeps the um, you know, the suspension of disbelief that it's not just your friend, you know, spouting off some stuff, but that there actually is a rich world here that exists independently of you and all that. Yeah, I think that's 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 the most satisfying. Uh, feeling I've
2: had as a player is to like freeform games where you know it's all kind of like spitballing is fun. It's it's, it's fun. It's it's but it's more fun in the sense of like hearing the sound of your own voice and and laughing at how clever we all are, which is fun. But it's different to like feeling that you're entering something real that exists objective separate. yeah it's a this a, is a different experience and i prefer i prefer the objective one like i don't i don't want to i don't want to 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 be the one being smart and clever i want to be like you know titillated with with all these exciting things that i could see and touch
1: as a player you mean as a player yeah okay. cuz that's Running, that's really I, interesting like mm. you know coming from like a lot of people would read troika you know or read some i mean even into the odd or a lot of these games that their their settings are kind of implicit or that you have to go and dig through blogs to like get some more of the creator's ideas about these things like and they would just be like oh it's like dungeon world you know it's just one of those story games where they make you just do all the work and make everything up and that's kind of a reaction against those games where a lot of players will roll their eyes if they're like you know what do i find you know um what's the what's the fashion like in this kingdom or something like that? And the mm. GM being like, I don't know, what do you think it's like? And they're just like, oh gosh, one of these. And so it's interesting to hear that you say that you actually prefer the, you know, the, the objective, like that there is a ready answer for everything. Mm. Um, it's not so much that I don't, I don't need to,
2: I don't need to, I don't need there to actually be an answer. I just need, I just like, I just like to, th- to the illusion. I, I, I can suspend my disbelief and think that everything everything in the entire world and the entire campaign is pre-scripted and i'm just there just kind of like just charging through not pre-scripted but like it's like you know the person i meet in the shop or he already existed like he's not you're not just making him up on the fly and doing a good job of it it's like he's, he's right he was yeah, there yeah. all along
1: like he That's he so. was he had breakfast this morning you yeah. know like and if you asked him what it was like he would have an answer like that sort of thing yeah it's like
2: I mean, like, cause you can do the, 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 the apocalypse worldy style thing of like, you know, the back and forth, like, oh, so what do you think they're wearing? But you can do it, you can do it sneakily. Like, I think like people have been doing since the very beginning, like, you'll just, um, you'll just, you'll make, you'll make strategic kind of pauses where people will, will, uh, will, all the players will, be like oh well, what if what if it's this what if it's this trap what if we go to the trap and it's this and it's and they do this and they've made this plan and they've kidnapped this person and the game master's saying well that's obviously what's going to happen now right that's, <laughs> the, that's the that's exactly the same arrangement it just there's just more illusion going oh uh,
1: there's yeah. a beautiful example of that that uh, i was listening to some talk from the gauntlet community and they're huge into you know uh, apocalypse world and all of its child games but they were saying that when when they're doing the perilous journey move. Which is a move in Dungeon world to sort of abstract long, long journeys. Whoever is the the uh, the trailblazer, I think it is, or the scout, whatever they call it, um, specifically in move, um, the the person is recommending that you ask that player like what uh, what threats are in this area, like what threats do you expect to encounter, and they would be like, hmm, okay, I guess you know I might be looking out for bandits and and I might be looking out you know for for sturges and like. You know, drakes and things like that in this area, and then you're like, okay, okay, and then you decide what you want the encounter to be based on what they say, and then the player might be like, I was right, you know, (laughs) how did I know? And they're 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 missing the fact that you they basically fed you you know some options. Yeah, yeah. It's I suppose like the um,
2: I I guess this is why I've I've never responded really well with the with the world stuff. It's just like I can I can see I can see the game master fishing. (laughs) it's like i know what you're doing you're fishing me mm-hmm. you're always fishing me you're doing you're doing a move i've
0: read the book yeah. <laughs> get away from me something i'm trying to get better um. at is concealing that particular technique because it's my favorite mm. thing to do is ask my players well what is true about the world Ha um and let them do the work for me i think i've picked up a couple of techniques recently that i've been having a lot of fun with like asking for player opinions or for character opinions about things and then letting their opinions shape the reality in a way that's just slightly off um hmm. and i'm curious any other any other techniques that you would recommend kind of saying that you don't like being on the receiving end of it but also being someone who has to you know has to run things from the perspective of the gm the objective world holder i mean i uh... I'm
2: I, I, I don't I don't uh, rate my ability to run games to be honest this uh, I find it incredibly stressful and and I always Um. yeah I, I find it a very difficult draining experience it's like I wish I could say I'm one of those like I have all these I have all these like tips and tricks and wonderful ways of uh, of making it easy but no it's a slog it's it's, yeah. it's awful yeah. Um uh you know i over prepare i under prepare i under-prepare, I, uh, I do everything wrong and it's just you know i just i just bumble through it's um
1: i think that's um, probably pretty relatable yeah, for a lot I of think our that's listeners great. i mean yeah. there's um <laughs> i one thing i did want to to ask because i'm kind of realizing that this is the i've never i've never cornered daniel Sell in an, in an inn before <laughs> but i i'd be interested that outside of of troika and outside of fifth edition and anything that any d and d variants like I'm gonna rule out you know even things like the black hack and whatnot what what's your favorite role playing game whether independent or not Whatever,
2: ever or um hmm i guess um the game I have let see the the game like I haven't played it for a very long time but the game i uh have the most warmth for is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition um mm. i i reference i reference it a lot when I'm kind of just like i think when when I was trying to right uh, I mean I mean to get back on to me saying how smart I am the uh uh when I was like going when I was approaching Troika uh and like I had I was trying to figure out what kind of what the voice needed to be cuz like it needs, it needs like, it needs like some kind of authorial voice that kind of generates that feeling I was talking about earlier, you know, the whole like, you know, warm, nostalgic kind of thing. And the game that made that in me was was Warhammer Fantasy. So I, I looked through that and just the, the way they, the way it's written, the way it's presented, the way it just like doesn't care that it's a mess. It's really, it's really nice. It's really. I don't know. It's 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 comforting. It's like there there were you you can really feel the 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 hands that made it. You know, it's there there were there were people behind this, rather than like Dungeons and Dragons is is quite cold. Um, Yeah,
1: it's it seems mass market. You know, yeah, just like a corporation made this game instead of like two people or one person. Broad kind of broad kind of uh, uh, angle attack. They want all of (laughs) it. Just fine. I think that, like, a thing. I think Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay um, and probably other adjacent Warhammer games like um, Death Watch and uh, Rogue Trader and that sort of stuff is probably underplayed in the US. I mean, I see that Warhammer as a tabletop game is played in game stores here and there and especially probably more so in canada and toronto from just what i see online but and i played warhammer the tabletop game as a kid just but just literally with my siblings because i didn't know anyone else who played and i had Mm -hmm. inherited the models from friends in a different state but um but yeah i I feel like that probably has a fond place in the heart of a lot of british gamers warhammer just as a whole yeah i mean it's suffered i mean it's it's not it's not some kind of perfect lovely
2: thing it's uh, like it has been it's been beaten to death and dragged through yeah. <laughs> the same mud that Dungeons and Dragons has been it's like they have like especially what was it the second edition with its endless endless books about everything it's like if, if you want to know if you want to know the, the 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 tedious details of any bit of the Warhammer world then they have a uh a uh,
1: supplement for you
2: yeah it's, I mean they still do it's like all you need is just, or if you want to play Warhammer, you just get the first edition rule book. You read that and you just figure it out. Cause it's just, it's just, it doesn't tell you anything. It's so, it's so sp- sparse on details for such a large and rambling book. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think
1: a lot of people in, in this country probably have, have feelings for it. If you want to spend, age. uh, if you want to spend five to ten minutes and just get the feel of Warhammer, uh, I'll link in the show notes uh, a hack uh, that's someone made of Into the Odd, a one page hack of Into the Odd called Doomhammer that is Into the Odd but Warhammer. And it, it contains somehow in one page all the essential elements that, I don't know, I love it.
0: Now that yeah. is just it's some a... extraordinary design right there. Um, and... yeah, they,
1: they had a thing where you roll d6 for your character's health, and based on what that roll was, like whether it's like, you know, one, two, three, four, or five, six your haircut will be different. Oh great. <laughs> and so like as <laughs> if your character oh, yeah. has more health, it's represented by them having a more like BA haircut of like flowing mane. And if you ha- you have, you know, HP of 1, you might be bald or HP of 2, you might have like a bowl cut or a tonsure. It's hilarious. <laughs> so, one of one of the
2: uh, one of the one of the projects I have in in various states of of abuse is is a Warhammer hack. I wanted I wanted to make my own little warhammer hacker like a true one a real one um and um i think the the way to do it is to do it completely deadpan just just you, you, i think that the the trick to getting a game to sound like warhammer cause like i think making making a funny kind of tongue in cheek response to it is is the is the, it's like the obvious way to go, but to do it like to do it like they they did originally, like you know, it's it's grim and it's dark and it's awful and blah, blah, but it's it's not. It's so cheesy and camp. But just like a <laughs> yeah. bit like be like um, yeah, be like an eighties glam metal band. Sure, right?
0: as opposed to a seventies <laughs> like death me- or well, no, not death metal. I'm sorry i i'm letting <laughs> I'm letting it known be known that I am a fake metalhead over here. Because I'm, I'm having the hardest time placing the word heavy metal in my vocabulary. It's not Black Sabbath. It's Deaf Leopard, um, or rather, it's Deaf Leopard pretending to be Black Sabbath. So, with that in mind, I think Dan, you've been, you, you've given a lot of really great, evocative uh, ideas about game design, about the ways in which you present your games, both as a player, a GM, and of course as a writer and publisher. And I think now might be a great time for us to jump into our next segment. Picture this. Uh, and actually come up with something concrete that we as Dungeon World players can uh, can put into our own games. All right. Well, Eamon, you want to take point on this particular bit? Palace of Tigers.
1: Ooh. This is something that I also encountered on... Um daniel's blog that kind of meshes with some of the things we were talking about earlier where i was reading through troika and i was sort of like where's the rest of it like i was like where are the million spheres (laughs) like someone tell me what they are because i was just so hungry to like explore you know those planes and i wasn't at the table with friends and stuff and so i was just wondering if there was stuff out there and i was scouring through the g plus community for it and um so uh and and scouring through the melsonia discord server and people had made um A channel that was sphere repository and background repository and i was like yes i'm close and i found a link to just a couple like little like write-ups of some spheres that you had made on your uh on your blog and one and and it was exactly what i was looking for basically it was just like what (laughs) what weird places can i go and one of them that stuck out to me was the palace of tigers that was imagine this dimension that's just endless palace it's just elaborately decorated dining room flowing into garden flowing into you know sculpture uh sculptures and fountains and just everything like that um but it's entirely ruled by aristocratic tigers or maybe uh Shah's. and um there's this race of servants that are like nearly invisible just because they they just blend into the scenery not because of like chameleonic skin or anything but just sort of like a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy-esque not my problem field or mm-hmm. because they're just sort of so unassuming you just don't notice them until you're literally bumping into them and they live like in secret apartments in the walls and things like that i I actually used this in a game uh, to run some players through that and one of the players like uh, while the other players were bluffing that they were actually tigers in disguise transmogrified into humans for a big joke and trying to like talk their way past this tiger to not eat them um this other player like found one of these um servant Heidi Holes and followed one of the servants back and like put on a serving outfit and like was starting to like serve this banquet. And so it was really just fun to play with a, a plane of existence that wasn't just another like, you know, a desert or a jungle. You know you know how the, you know how in nice. uh in Star Wars they're always landing on planets and out of the million planets they are, they're always just one of like four biomes. <laughs> it's the ice planet this week. Yeah, um. Right. So in and that's kind of what we can break out of sometimes these planes where they come into this place and the rules are totally different. That there is no wilderness. It's just it's entirely a comedy of manners, you know, where yeah. the, the result is you might get eaten by a tiger. And and, and the emergent gameplay from that was incredible. Like at one point they um the tigers brought in this giant serving dish with with uh you know, like the, the big silver serving dish, and uh they opened it and the player's navigator was trussed up there, and they're like, Oh no, and they're like, This is the main course. <laughs> and uh and so one player says, like, you know, oh, um, you know as is the tiger way i I like to eat my prey running not just tied up like this can you release her and they released her and she started running off and he chased (laughs) after her until they were around a corner and then shrunk her with a bit of magic put her in his pocket cut himself smeared some blood on his face to make it look like he ate her and then returned to the table and i was like that's (laughs) epic i know i had no idea that that was gonna happen that's
2: so good ah that's brilliant (laughs) yeah it's like yeah, you gotta like you gotta have like a place that just it just suggests itself, you know. It just kind of unravels in front of you when you start picking at it. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And and what a cool moment of player skill versus character skill there. You know, it's such a player skill to to see that as a possibility, and then if their character can execute on it, well, just what fun. Yeah, that's.
1: I think that's the core skill of role playing. That like people like that are invariably as long as they're amenable as a person gonna be really fun to play with. Because just that's when you get those story moments. And 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 I'm always trying to aim for as many of those in as dense a time as you can. You know. And and those ones that will stick out to me forever. Like times where players stacked the corpses of their dead friends to escape out of a pit or you know <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I think uh Troika um does a good bit of game design in order to open up itself to those things where it gives you just enough tools to play with uh and i noticed this in the the spell design too like i think i think it's the first spell in the list of the troika spells is called assassin's dagger and the description the the description goes something like this it says this evocatively named but rather simple spell uh, simply you cast it on an object and it will seek out the intended target and vigorously bump up against them it says obviously the results when cast on a poisoned knife are one thing and cast on a sealed envelope are quite another <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a fun spell. People always enjoy getting that. Just you, you, just, just sending nonsense to, to people. Because
1: that's the type of thing that a wizard would make. Like, all this spell does is it brings an item to someone and just starts. Because even with a letter, it's still funny that instead of just gently delivering a letter, this letter will fly in through a window and start vigorously, like, bumping <laughs> up against this character. It yeah. have to snatch it out of the air, hold it still, and rip it open yeah
2: it's like it's like priority wizard mail rather than just uh you know economy i imagine that one just kind of just turns up one day politely on your pillow
1: <laughs> But yeah I, but you can imagine that like my players would cast that on like cooked chickens or like cream pies and the, the like the they you know the the king is like oh what a lovely gift that it floats through the window on a on a you know during a feast but it doesn't stop you know it goes <laughs> goes right into him. just bashes them <laughs> square in the face
2: yeah, well, I suppose. Like, I suppose. Um, again, I think you reminded me, like, with, with the spells, and also like the backgrounds, like, there were uh, there's not very many of them, but they're like they're they're done in such a way. More, they're designed more to show you how to make more of them than they are to provide enough to be getting on with. You know, like you need more spells because the spells are so specific and like weird. They're not. If you keep getting Assassin's Daggers coming up, it's just like, it's a bit boring now. It's like, it's, it, the spell is too weird for you to, to keep, you know, showing it to me and, and having everyone know it. So like. Right. Yeah. So it just creates a, a tone for people to make it. Same with the backgrounds. It's like they're, it's like when they you They have a half life, you, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then, and you like, when you've read a few of them, it's like, it's really obvious how to make them. You get, you, you get a feel for the tone and the way it works. And like people, there's some. There's a few people who've deliberately made like Troika backgrounds and they've like totally nailed the voice. Like they're. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you could just, you could stick them in and you wouldn't know I didn't write them. They're just like, it's like they, you know, it's got like, it's got a cadence and a tone and the, and they, then they do it and it's great. That's really and And really some people cool.
1: even, um, make ones that are coherent with each other. Like I saw someone that they made their own entire D66 table of a whole new set. And they were all themed around this like interesting sort of desert world. I think Mm. I'll I'll try to link that too, but but um but not so like you could play as like a a three legged like beetle rider, or you could play as like a plastic man who's like coated in the coated in like the toxic plastic of this like sea of plastic in the desert, or you could play as you know all these different things that were obviously in in the same way as Troika part of some world, but you don't get the setting guide for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading that. They were, they were really good. They were very impressive. Like, yeah, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll track down and credit the uh, the, the writer of those, but kudos, kudos
0: to you. Fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciated your perspective <laughs> and the really cool things that you've done. So it was <laughs> a real joy to have pleasure. you. And hopefully everyone out there goes and checks out Troika, which we have linked in the show notes. So take a look down there for that. Let us know also if you use anything that we talked about in this episode in your games. We'd love to talk about it more. Send in an email if you're so inclined to play to find out at protonmail.com or uh, hit us up on Twitter at play number 2 find out. Now, I think And uh and Dan, what's what's your Twitter?
2: My Twitter is uh ignus1 number 1. So it's i g n u s number 1.
1: Okay, yeah, and uh, also you can find him over at uh, whatwouldconan.do at yep, or at the uh, melsonia.com. Yeah, I'm I'm all over the place. Um, I'm very googlable. Fan, and he's now on the Dungeon World Discord. That's right, guys. A career highlight for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this exclusive the really the uh the literati of the dungeon of the dungeon world community that's the truth
0: <laughs> well speaking of things that uh the dungeon world community really has going for it i think it's time for us to get back out into this uh this awful stressful party and dance our yeah. faces off like great gms that we are there's probably a line forming out, ain't out that the, the truth people wondering what we're doing so in- now that we've sufficiently destroyed this whole situation I think it's time for us to sign off. Once again, I'm Art or Art Projects on the Dungeon World Discord. I'm Eamon or Voidlight on the Dungeon World Discord. It's been a thrill having you at the table tonight. And thank you, Dan, for joining us. My pleasure. (laughs)